The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, September 14th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga. This is a very special day on Autism One, a conversation of hope, because we are joined on the release date of the superb book, The Age of Autism, Mercury, Medicine, and a Man-Made Epidemic, by authors Mark Blacksell and Dan Olmsted. Dan Olmsted is an award-winning veteran journalist, and Mark Blacksell is the author of several scientific papers involving autism. Mark and Dan's new book, The Age of Autism, is one of my favorite books, and I consider it essential for any library as it grasps not just history and science related to the autism community and children's health, but it also presents a much larger public health perspective upon which the foundations of psychoanalytic thought and much of medicine are based. I found this book impressive, comprehensive, fascinating, and engaging. It's impressive and comprehensive to me because I know enough about the topic to see that Mark and Dan did an excellent job covering it, capturing the scope, plus including relevant and fascinating details that I did not know. I also found the narrative style highly engaging as well as easy to read. This book is a classic that will remain relevant for generations to come. Well done, gentlemen. Welcome. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, Terry. I, I'm sort of speechless I, I, <laughs> with that wonderful introduction, but I'll try to find words here to continue on. <laughs> well, you're welcome, and thank you for joining us. You bet. Let's start with this. Why do we need to know what really causes autism? Why do we need to know if it's really man-made? Well, I'll take a crack at that, Terry. This is Mark. Um, you know, I, I think there are sort of two prevailing views of autism that are in circulation. You know, one is that autism is 100% inherited from the parents. It's been around forever. Uh, the medical profession is just doing a better job at finding cases and that somehow this fact that we've now discovered that 1% of American kids are autistic isn't something that we should be especially concerned about because uh, these kids have always been there. Um, the other view is you know, and, and if that's true, then somehow you know, we're not really facing a change of any kind in, in the way children are, are being affected. Uh, and, and so there's no real cause to do anything in particular other than the kinds of things that we would normally do with mentally disabled children and adults. The other view, which I think Dan and I uh, argue uh, strongly in our book, and which I think all the credible evidence supports is that you know that there's been a dramatic increase 
in the rate of autism, uh, particularly starting in, you know, in children born uh, after 1990. Um, we argue, actually, that if you go back to the, to the 1930s, uh, there are no, uh, that, that the rate of autism was effectively zero before 1930. And that we've we've identified, or psychologists at the time identified, uh, the first clusters of, of cases with autism. Uh, for a long time, autism was around, but the rates were relatively low. And then in this, in the last decade or two, it's kicked up. If that is true, then what we're looking at in terms of you know the the huge uh, uh, costs that are, are being inflicted on families and children and society in just you know a, a a very short period of time, uh, you know, we've got to do something about it. There is, you know, the autism epidemic is new, it's urgent, and it should be, you know, it's a bigger health crisis than polio, than paralytic polio was back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, we need that kind of response. We need that kind of sense of urgency to find the causes, to find treatments and, and uh, for affected individuals and to provide support uh, for the families that are dealing with this crisis. And I do think that second point about, uh, you know, if you if you know the cause, you're much likelier to be able to treat it effectively, uh, at least in many cases, is so important because, you know, we know that, that many parents have found ways to help their children without much uh, assistance from the mainstream medical community because they do embrace this other idea that it's a lifelong, uh, genetically determined disorder that you just essentially have to... Uh, try to do palliative care with instead of uh, really uh, pulling these kids out of this uh, with, with uh, interventions that include uh, you know, uh, supplements and diet and that sort of thing. When people reference fairy changelings of earlier centuries, is there some explanation for that vis-a-vis the first 20th century cases of autism described by Dr. Leo Kanner, uh, to which Mark alluded? Well, changelings don't really have much to do with autism because one of the uh, key points that Leo Connor made when he saw these first children in the 1930s was that they uh, were this way uh, from the beginning. And, of course, we have uh, had a, a new subtype develop of regressive autism, but nonetheless, they all occurred uh, within early infancy uh, and, you know, had to be diagnosable by age three. So, you know, these these very rare reports from earlier centuries, uh, who knows if they may be actually, uh, uh, you know, some instances of autistic behavior, but I don't really think that they indicate anything about the prevalence of the disorder back then. You titled your book, The Age of Autism, Mercury, Medicine, and Man-Made Epidemic. Let's look at mercury. How long has at least some critical mass of people known that mercury is toxic? For example, on page 92 of your book, you quote Dr. Alfred Still in 1860 as saying, the dangers of mercury in medicine are mercurial fever, morbid action on the skin, ulceration, salivation, mercurial purgings or foul bowel movements, affections of the bones, affections of the nervous system like pain, sensory distortion, epilepsy, mania, dementia, and insanity? Well, Terry, I think uh, practicing doctors have been using mercury in a whole variety of forms for about as long as, you know, as the history of Western medicine has been around. Um, Mercury has some properties that make it interesting, 
particularly when doctors don't know what they're doing. Uh, the most useful property was mercury rubs on the skin tended to um, uh, you know, contain bacterial contaminations of the skin like leprosy. Um, but uh, the, the real surge of mercury into medicine uh, occurred in Europe when syphilis hit, you know, came back with uh, Columbus uh, in the 1490s. And, uh, and syphilis was a horrible scourge in Europe, and, and, and it was particularly uh, you know, problematic on, on the skin. And so doctors very quickly tried to find something to do, and mercury was you know, about the only weapon they had. And they began slathering mercury on syphilis patients. One of the things that they found was that, you know, right at the beginning, that there were horrible toxic effects of mercury. You know, some of the earliest doctors uh, you know, who, who treated syphilis with mercury were literally run out of town. Um, so uh, you know, the, the history of mercury is a constant history of both you know, uh, the appeal of it as a therapeutic to the medical profession and, and the manifest toxic properties of, of the substance when you, know, you tried to put it in real human beings. Uh, you, Dr. Steele, you know, went on at great length about the dangers of mercury in medicine, um, but he wasn't the first and he wasn't the last. Um, it's it's been a controversial subject almost from the beginning, you know, of the medical profession. In fact, the first chapter of your book is the age of syphilis. I appreciate that you included this because in years past, when I read of the use of mercury to treat syphilis, it seemed to me that the symptoms of syphilis that were described looked suspiciously like the symptoms of mercury poisoning. You used a phrase, the disease of the remedy. How do we tease out the disease of the disease from the disease of the remedy? Well, what we found was that uh, as the mercury treatments for syphilis grew ever more sophisticated and, and invasive, uh, a new disease arose called general paralysis of the insane, which is as bad as it sounds. These uh, people would uh, essentially, you know, go crazy with grandiose delusions, uh, be crippled, and then die uh, an agonizing death. And uh, as we looked at the development of these mercury treatments, it seemed as though the cases of general paralysis occurred, uh, in, you know, only in the groups that were treated with uh, mercuric chloride either uh, through injection or drinking it. This was supposedly an advance on what Mark was talking about, just slathering it on your skin, but of course it was a more toxic molecule than elemental mercury, and it was delivered much more, uh, uh, you know, invasively. And so uh, as we looked at groups like Austrian army officers who had, uh, you know, been treated with uh, mercuric chloride, we saw a high rate, 9 or 10 percent, and then if we looked at groups that were not treated, including the, in the infamous Tuskegee uh, study uh, that the uh, Public Health Service in the United States conducted in which they wanted to see what would happen if they didn't treat uh, syphilis in, in uh, male Negroes, as they described it, uh, we saw none. So we think this is a pretty clear um, instance in which mercury was causing actually thousands and thousands of, of horrible deaths at the same time that, uh, you know, they thought that they were treating it. Now, the community is abuzz with uh, a study that recently came out, just came out, the pediatric study, and there are many studies out there that are purported to prove that there's no link between uh, the use of 
mercury in vaccines and autism. Let's go back and look at uh, some precedents here. Please tell us about the Oslo study of untreated syphilis of the early 20th century. Was this an early example of a bogus study? Well, Terry, one comment I'd make about this recent study is, you know, it's absurd on its face. You know, I think, you know, the, the, the study that just came out this week effectively argues that thimerosal is good for babies and it protects you from autism. You know, I mean, if, if that's what the study, if that's the answer the study design produced, you know, clearly, you know, the, uh, something in terms of the way they managed the numbers was incredible. And, you know, it's one of the things that a lot of us who have been investigating, um, you know, some of the defenses of, of mercury-based treatments have done for a long time. And, and you mentioned this Oslo study. Um, you know, one of the, the things that we learned in our work um, on syphilis was that the treatment of syphilis was controversial for a long time. Doctors talked about it all the time. And there was even a concern, you know, a whispered concern, because you don't find publications, you only find glancing references to it. There was a concern that uh, mercury, or the GPI, in fact, was a disease of the remedy, and that some of the forms of neurosyphilis were exacerbated. Um, you had the, this um, spirochete uh, trypanoma pallidus, or, or syphilis, uh, uh, causing damage, and you also had mercury uh, in the system as well, and that this combination of the two uh, you know, might produce simply toxic effects or might produce combinatorial effects. And so this was an idea that was out there, and, and there were practices in Europe, particularly in Norway, that consciously refused to use mercury, and they reported that they had better outcomes in their syphilis patients than the rest of Europe. Uh, and, and there was even a study done that showed that there was virtually zero uh, GPI uh, incidence in, in Norway uh, you know, in a group of patients that were not treated with mercury. Um, so, uh, so long story short, uh, uh, the Public Health Service in the United States commissioned a study to look at this group, and they effectively, in 300 pages of dense uh, uh, study, you know, argued that there was no connection between the treatment uh, and and the uh, or there's no difference in the outcomes between the treated and the untreated patients. Hmm. An early precedent, an example of a bogus study. And uh, before we go to break, I just want to compliment your elegant phrase that you used in your book: "Mercury drove the microbe mad," which is what I think you were just referring to with GPI. Oh. And uh, with that, we'll go to break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on 
on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten, and Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with authors Mark Blacksell and Dan Olmsted on the release date of their excellent book, The Age of Autism, Mercury, Medicine, and a Man-Made Epidemic. And gentlemen, where can people obtain this book? I think it's everywhere, uh, certainly on Amazon and other uh, you know, order-by-mail uh, outfits and then uh, in, in the big bookstores. Our publisher, Thomas Dunn, has done a good job of uh, promoting it and placing it. I think starting in a couple of days, it's going to be out on one of the tables at Barnes & Nobles that says of special interest or food for thought, that kind of thing. So we're, we're not going to be uh, hard to find. Wonderful, because this is essential to everybody's library. Let's go back to some fundamental information about mercury. What is the composition of mercury? Why is it important for us to understand that? Well, you know, mercury is often described as a heavy metal, and one of the interesting insights, Terry, that we, we learned is that that's kind of a meaningless word. You know, uh, the active ingredient in, in, in Pepto-Bismol is heavier than mercury, and it's not especially toxic. And most atoms, if you look at a, at a periodic table, are metals. So the notion of a heavy, heavy metal is, um, you know, is is less specific than we think. Uh, so you know, mercury is toxic, uh, but it, its toxicity varies uh, depending on you know the way it, it is. Um, you know, it, there's a chemical word for species, but you know, the specific chemical form that it comes in. There's a, a form called um, elemental mercury or metallic mercury that is the kind that you see in a thermometer. And believe it or not, you know, if it stays in that, firm, it, that form, most of the time uh, that kind of mercury is relatively inert. Uh, you could even swallow it, and, uh, and, and most people wouldn't be affected by that. Um, but there's another form of mercury called, you know, inorganic mercury, where in fact 
um, the, the, a couple of the electrons come off of the molecule, and then it becomes much more reactive. Um, inorganic mercury can also be very toxic. Uh, Dan was talking about mercuric chloride before, uh, as, and that's in a form of inorganic mercury. But interestingly enough, it doesn't tend to cross the placental barrier or the blood-brain barrier. So there's another form of mercury in which uh, you have a, a, a carbon atom attached or you know, some form of group that has a carbon atom. And those, are, those forms are called organic mercury, things like methyl mercury, which you, you, you often find in, in fish, or ethyl mercury, which is the kind that's, uh, that we talk about a lot in our book. Um, that kind of mercury can easily get into the brain, uh, and so it's differentially toxic uh, particularly early in life when, you know, when the developing brain is so sensitive. And so uh, depending on the form of mercury, the body handles it differently. It goes to different places, it, it, it's metabolized in different ways, and it's retained in various parts of the body and various organs in different ways. And it's really important you know, to understand the trajectory of mercury through the body uh, so that you can understand you know, what kinds of mercury are toxic and how the, and how the toxicity is being, um, you know, being experienced. And I would imagine that a factor that is important to many families who have a child who has an autism diagnosis is latency. So could you please tell us about latency, including what happened to the adult scientist, Karen Wetterhahn? Well, one of the strange things about mercury is that its effects are not necessarily immediate. Uh, And Karen Wetterhahn was a scientist at Dartmouth and a very good one who I was working on NIH grants and that sort of thing, and she was working under very controlled laboratory conditions with dimethylmercury, which is in the same class as the ethylmercury that uh, we've been talking about. It's, it's in vaccines and in, was in fungicides. And she just had a, a minor slip where, even though she had latex gloves and a, and a hood that was blowing the fumes away from her, she got a, a dimethylmercury of about the weight of a paperclip on her gloves, and it seeped through, and about five months later, she had her first symptoms, which were the, the typical, or not typical, but uh, the kind that you sometimes see with, with mercury poisoning, where she was dizzy and couldn't remember things and that sort of thing. And she ended up in the hospital, and they did a mercury, you know, a test on her uh, blood, and the mercury levels were off the charts, and subsequently she died. So you can see that even with a very toxic form, uh, you know, it, it took long enough that... Uh, it was just impossible to, tra- it would have been impossible to trace it in, in another case where it wasn't so clear that the exposure had happened. Which was one of the reasons, Terry, that um, it was controversial all through history because, you know, mercury's benefits were often seen, you know, relatively quickly. Skin might clear up or, or you know, some, some effects might be experienced rapidly. But the, you know, the injuries, the toxic injuries, often took quite a while to unfold. And so when you separate you know, the injury from the administration of the mercury and the exposure to the mercury by long distances in time, it's easy to, to dismiss the negative outcomes as being due to something else. We brought up a question during the break referring to what the doctors of ages past, centuries past, were seeing about what mercury did, for example, with leprosy and skin lesions, syphilis, etc. It's killing things. What else is it killing? You described mercury as the great pretender. What does that mean? Well, its, it's symptom profile is so varied, and uh, you get everything from uh, pink disease, in which, in which the uh, uh, 
uh, mercury was causing redness of the hands and a great distress in children and was killing them. It came in teething powder to uh, constriction of the visual field and paralysis and uh, hallucinations and all those kinds of things. And so uh, it, it's not as though it does one thing, and if you see that, you know it's mercury poisoning, and if it does something else, you know it's not. It's a, it's a wily character, and it does all kinds of bad things to people. Mark, did you want to add to that? Mark? Hello? Okay. Well, you also, in your book, were talking about the great autism gene hunt. Right. Right. You know, the the prevailing mainstream medical view is that autism is fundamentally, it's genetically determined uh, disorder. And so the amount of time and money that has gone into hunting for the genes that supposedly cause autism is just incredible and and is continuing to be the the bulk of the research funding but increasingly they're finding nothing but but noise in their studies they're not finding consistent and replicable uh genetic uh, anomalies that would explain this disorder and so it, it, it's almost self-evidently time to uh give that up or at least uh turn the money elsewhere to the environmental aspect of, of autism because it just it's it, because of the increase and also because of the failure to find any consistent genetic basis it just does not look like a genetic disorder Dan I know that you did some wonderful research involving Leo Kanner and his cases where did syphilis let's go back to syphilis where did syphilis and Leo Kanner intersect well this is kind of a remarkable resonance where uh, when Leo Connor first came to America from uh, Germany in the 1920s, he ended up at a sort of a, I don't know if you'd call it a backwater, but it was the Yankton State Hospital in uh, the Dakotas. And uh, he got interested in the idea of general paralysis of the insane uh, and was looking for it in American Indians and didn't find any. I mean, he found one case, which, as he said, was kind of the exception that proved the rule, and this was a very westernized Indian who wore a coat and tie and that sort of thing. And so what ultimately he decided was that there was something going on that seemed to protect uh, Native Americans from syphilis, from the general uh, paralysis of the insane outcome in syphilis. And he thought it had to do with the fact that maybe it had been in that population longer and that sort of thing. But we think it was because, and we, we have evidence that we that we show in the book, that there was a not the mercury uh, medical interventions among the Indians. They treated it with an herb, and, you know, they were not getting the latest European medicine. And so it was kind of an early uh, warning, in a sense, that Leo Connor was a, was a good a diagnostician. He was able to find the one Indian who had this, but not necessarily... Uh, the best person to look for what might be causing uh, this difference. And so that then came up again when he moved to Baltimore and started seeing his first cases of autism. He was very astute at finding uh, them and realizing that even though they had a variety of of severity in the cases, that they were uh, all uh, basically displaying the same common disorder, but, you know, he kind of went off the rails very early because at the end of that study, he started talking about how the parents were uh, aloof and not very warm-hearted, and he didn't know if that had something to do with it. And, of course, that became a horrendous prevailing conception for, for quite a few years. 
All right, and we'll pick up with this when we come back from break on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dan Olmsted and Mark Blacksell. Authors of The Age of Autism, Mercury, Medicine, and a Man-Made Epidemic. And this is the definitive volume on this, so I would encourage you to run to Amazon.com or other outlets, bookstores, and pick up a copy of this, which is essential to your library. And let's pick up with you, Mark, um, a, a, a quintessential question. Are kids really sicker than ever? Is that the question we should be asking? Well... You know that you, you kind of want to break that down, Terry, at some levels. You know, we we argue and, and believe very strongly that we've got uh, you know an epidemic of autism among at least American children and, and probably you know in, in some other countries around the world as well. Um, and and those kids are sicker than ever. Um, we we all know as parents with affected children 
that the autism uh, symptoms come alongside of all sorts of other wonderful things, uh, including seizures and gastrointestinal issues and other autoimmune conditions. Um, so, you know, in a very real way, you know, our kids aren't defective, uh, they're sick. Um, and then when you look at the kinds of patterns of illness that these kids have, uh, you learn that there are other little epidemics out there. You know, asthma rates have increased uh, dramatically. Uh, you know, diabetes is up. You know, food allergies is up, are up. Um, and you have more kids in general in special education programs. So there's a, you know, a, a broader concern, I think, about a generational effect in children, uh, which should make all of us as, you know, as citizens and custodians of, you know, of future generations deeply concerned. You know, I think we've got, you know, uh, um, you know, a generation of kids that's sick in different ways uh, than children have ever been sick before. Uh, and in a, in a real sense, the autism cases, uh, in part, in part because they're so they're they're so disabled, um, and the and the parents of necessity are kind of mobilized, mobilized. Um, you know, the autism generation is sort of uh, you know they're the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, but, you know, just because the canaries are dropping doesn't mean that uh, there's not a broader effect and that we shouldn't be concerned. I think we really do need to be concerned. You wrote a marvelous paper on time trends in autism. Is there really an increase of autism specifically? Without question. You know, I mean, this is one of the simplest things uh, in in the world. I mean, any data source you look at, uh, whether it's naive or sophisticated, there is absolutely no doubt what the data shows, which is a dramatic, a tenfold, even a hundredfold increase in autism rates in a very short period of time. Now, you can get quite technical about that and go deeply into the methodologies of the different surveys and ask the question, are you comparing apples and oranges or apples and apples? And I've done that, you know, in some depth. Uh, and the answer is, you know, once you make you know, adjustments for all sorts of you know, natural differences between one study and another and one time period and another, you know, the, the results hold. The, the rates of autism have exploded. One of the things I'd like to comment, you know, one of the things that Dan and I in, in the book, you know, brought out in, in pretty sharp relief is, is Leo Connor. Um, in, in 1935, Leo Connor wrote a textbook on child psychiatry. It was over 500 pages long. And it went into excruciating detail on every known uh, disorder of, of children, from bedwetting to masturbation to more serious uh, uh, disorders. Not a whisper of autism in, in, that, uh, in that textbook written in 1935. And just eight years later, he wrote his landmark paper, you know, in 1943, Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact. contact. And the first line of that paper, uh, he said the following. He said, since 1938, there have come to our attention a number of children whose condition differs so markedly and uniquely from anything described so far that each case merits, and I hope will eventually receive, a detailed investigation of its fascinating peculiarities. So here he is, the world's leading expert in, in child psychiatry, and in 1935, He's never seen a case of autism, and in 1938, uh, he reports on the first one that he's seen. If that doesn't argue that autism is new, I don't know what does, Terry, and, and every bit of evidence supports 
you know, the, the simple argument that we've gone from autism rates that were effectively zero in children born before 1930 to a rate of 1 in 100, uh, or 1% 1 of children, in some, in some cases more, born in the 1990s. Something is going on, and, and the rates are obviously rising. We need to do something about that. That's very important, what you just said, Mark. And uh, Connor was from Johns Hopkins. Am I correct in that? That's correct. So that is a purportedly reputable institution. And um, for our listeners, just to let you know, um, you know, Mark's background, he's Harvard-trained, uh, an expert in numbers, analyzing numbers. Is that correct, Mark? I've been accused of that. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so, Dan, let's talk more about Connor and his first cases, especially Donald T. and, and things that you observed. Well, the core of our book uh, is that we were able to identify seven of the 11 original cases that were described in the paper that Mark was just talking about in 1943. And uh, they were originally just a first name and a last initial. But in this Internet age, the information that was contained in there led us to several of these children and their families. And what we found was... Uh, uh, kind of a striking proximity of ethyl mercury in the background of, of these families, and not just in uh, uh, vaccinations, but in its earlier and original uses as a fungicide, uh, the seed disinfectant, and lumber treatment. Um, and uh, certainly among the most interesting of the cases that we found was case one. His name is Donald Triplett, and he is from Forest, Mississippi. We think the word forest is not just a, a coincidence there. That was where uh, some of the earliest studies in southern Mississippi were going on of this uh, ethyl mercury as a lumber treatment, and his parents built their house in 1930. So this is speculative, and we acknowledge that, but we think there's certainly a connection that can be made there. What is most interesting about Donald uh, to us is uh, that his brother told us this amazing story of when Donald was 12, he was afflicted with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and nearly died. I mean, he, he, that's a very serious disorder, fevers, emaciation, a joint seizing up, and that sort of thing. He was treated with gold salts uh, over a period of several mo months that were uh, administered intravenously, and as the gold salts took effect and uh, alleviated this autoimmune disorder of arthritis, uh, it also alleviated some of his most severe autism symptoms. He became more social. Uh, he was less anxious. He was able to go to college, and he was you know, president of his fraternity. He had a career at the bank in Forest, and he, he's still down there, and he's doing quite well. He likes to travel the world and play golf, and this is an astonishing, we think, uh, an overlooked uh, thing that the first case of autism was the first case of significant recovery, and it was mentioned uh, glancingly in some of the early works, but uh, once again, the medical uh, nature of this disorder and the fact that it could be alleviated to the point of, of, of a significant recovery was just missed, and that's, that's tragic. That's yeah, that really gets tragic. back to what you were saying earlier about when you identify the cause and when parents are concerned with finding out the cause, not hearing that this is hopeless, lifelong prognosis, but identifying the cause, you can go after the treatment, and in fact, children are recovering and significantly improving. And you're right, there, there have been missteps all along the way and things that were significant in the literature that were missed, but that you and uh, Mark picked up. I'm really impressed by your research and description of Dora, a patient of Freud, 
illuminating his total faux psychoanalytic misread of her condition. Well, you know, our, the first sentence of our book is that uh, when we started looking into autism, we never meant to dig so deep, and we didn't, but we were sort of like Gatsby. We were born back ceaselessly into the past, so to speak, and, and we kept finding uh, what we thought were connections between mercury exposure and illness, and perhaps this, the most unusual one, and, and really, as, as far as we know, has never been proposed before, is that many of Freud's key hysteria cases were actually people, in, in many cases young women, who were mercury poisoned, and they had those symptoms. I mean, if you go back and read, you see that they had paralysis and uh, pneumonitis and uh, mental issues and that sort of thing that were much beyond simply, you know, maladjustment or childhood trauma, that sort of thing. And Dora was a young woman who was taking care of her father who was being treated by Freud originally for syphilis and general paralysis of the insane and almost certainly was, was you know, given mercury treatments. And Dora declined as her father, you know, temporarily improved and she started having all these symptoms that Freud simply just didn't connect with the fact that he was treating her father with mercury at the time and he concocted this elaborate uh, psychosocial, uh, you know, explanation for all her symptoms that are really kind of lurid, uh, especially for the time, and they're still kind of astonishing. But but uh, we think that, uh, as strange as it sounds, that this was actually a mistaken diagnosis for a lot of these early cases. They were mercury poisoned. Mark talked earlier about gastrointestinal symptoms, and so often when parents of children diagnosed with autism go to the doctor or talk to uh, talk to other people, they hear, oh, you know, gastrointestinal complaints are just part of autism. Um, but you described how Freud's patient, who was called the wolf man, had gastrointestinal problems from being given mercury, yet these were all attributed to psychological constructs and neuroses. Well, we came across a book that was uh, published many years after this uh, fellow called the Wolfman had, had been psychoanalyzed by Freud, and Freud had attributed this very severe sort of lack of functioning, really, of, of his GI system to you know, some exotic issues with his father and anal you know, compulsion. And a dream in his youth, yes. Yeah, and, and, but when you read this interview that the Wolfman did, this extended interview many years later, he said, well, that was ridiculous. He said what happened was the doctor gave me calomel, which is, uh, you know, mercury. Uh, and, mercury uh, chloride. It, it, mercury chloride, and, it, and it, uh, it blew out my system, and that's what happened. And he said, Freud kept saying, you, you know, we've, we've treated you, we've fixed you, and he said, no such thing. So you don't have to look very deep, uh, actually, to see, um, at least in that case, a very vivid and, and un- unequivocal case of mercury poisoning misdiagnosed as hysteria. And there seem to be plenty of descriptions in the literature of GI symptoms from mercury exposure occurring in the patient and practitioner alike. So what was the wider evolution of the use of mercury in medicine on patients, by caregivers, and in homes, and the corresponding symptoms in hysteria, very briefly. Well, we talk in syphilis in the case of hysteria that mercuric chloride uh, was, uh, was traceable to some of those cases, and it was used both in, in syphilis treatment and as an antiseptic. But mercury in all its forms was used very widely in medicine, 
and you know, and syphilis and hysteria are only two of the specific cases. We, you know, we we left out a lot of juicy stuff, Terry, in terms of the way mercury w- uh, was was synthesized and and the way patients were exposed to it. Uh, the the damage that mercury uh, you know created was vast. All right, but you put a lot of juicy stuff in, and that's exactly why listeners need to pick up a copy of this book, The Age of Autism, Mercury Medicine and a Man-Made Epidemic by Dan Olmsted and Mark Blaxel. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Mark Blaxel and Dan Olmsted, authors of the marvelous book, The Age of Autism, Mercury, Medicine, and a Man-Made Epidemic. I can't describe to you how well done this book is. And in this book, uh, gentlemen, you talked about Anna, who tended her ill father in 19th century Vienna, and how, among other things, she lost speech and had restricted vision. Well, the thing that we found interesting was that her symptoms began as she was at her father's bedside, uh, he had an abscess that had probably been treated with mercury chloride. That's just a speculation, but it, it's, this was the era when that first appeared as, as an antiseptic, and she uh, started hallucinating snakes coming out of her fingernails and uh, just became a complete wreck, and then 
declined over a period of several months with paralysis and loss of speech and what we think is is just a dead giveaway, which is uh, restriction of the visual field. So to the point where if she looked at a vase of flowers, she could only see one flower in the middle. And, and, you know, we did an interesting experiment where we uh, did a differential diagnosis of where if you look for paralysis and um, restriction of the visual field, basically mercury poisoning is what pops up. And um, she just really, I think, was not only the first psychoanalytic case in history, but the first misdiagnosed case of mercury poisoning uh, in in Freud's, uh, Freud's books. And speaking of, you know, foundational figures in medicine who misread things, there was a 19th century Frenchman, Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, who's known as the founder of modern neurology. But from your description of Charcot, he misinterpreted environmental poisoning and squeezed it into the psychoanalytic realm, thereby establishing a precedent for such a treatment of autism. Well, Charcot, Terry, was really the first... Uh, popularizer uh, in the medical profession of this notion of hysteria. Freud and his colleagues, um, Breuer uh, and others, you know, picked up on it and expanded it. But uh, Charcot was really the most famous uh, diagnostician around hysteria. Um, and he wrote at great length. He delivered lectures, his, his famous um, the Tuesday lectures there, um, where he would haul out his hysteria patients and they would all perform for the audience. It was very popular in Paris at the time. Um, and, and in his writings, he had lots, and p- lots of pictures of some of the characteristic symptoms of his hysteria patients. And, and two pictures in particular stand out. One is almost always you know, one of the diagnostic criteria hysteria. They called them the hysterical stigmata. Uh, but one of them was an ophthalmological chart showing that these patients generally had restricted visual fields uh, and that they couldn't, you know, their peripheral vision was, was obstructed. That's a, a known symptom of mercury poisoning. And all through his books, you see you know, detailed ophthalmological charts showing restricted visual fields. The other thing he shows, you know, at, uh, at multiple points was another one of the stigmata, which was numbness in in the in the peripheral nerves, uh, and and they would have elaborate charts of where on the body, the arms, the legs, uh, uh, the patient was was losing sensation in in in, uh, in his peripheral nerves, um, and and that again is a known symptom of mercury poisoning. So there you have it, you know the the. You know, the hysterical stigmata, the, the go-to symptoms that Charcot used uh, that he described as hysterical, that basically they were in the mind of the patient uh, and they weren't real. Effectively, they were, they, they were physical effects of psych, psychosomatic uh, uh, thoughts. Um, uh, Charcot misdiagnosed it. Uh, he, you know, he attributed symptoms to hysteria when, in fact, they were frank symptoms of mercury poisoning, just as mercury was being widely introduced uh, into the practice of medicine as an antiseptic. All right, two more questions. We see loss of speech and headbanging and other self-injurious behaviors in the pink disease to which Dan alluded, the pink disease of the early, early 20th century and the use of calomel. Tell us about this. Well, pink disease was uh, something that took the medical profession a long time to figure out, and even after there was a pretty credible evidence that it was mercury 
poisoning through teething powders and diaper rinses and that sort of thing. There was still a, a paper that came out in America that was saying that these kids all came from homes where the children were treated coldly. And so it was really a, a early precursor of the whole autism uh, evolution. Uh, these were not, they were different because this was more of a physical phenomenon where with autism, with the organic mercury, uh, we think that you know you get this crossing the blood-brain barrier, and you have you have these uh, behavioral symptoms that are much more pronounced. All right, we have established precedence and plausibility. Let's find out how the statistics for autism diagnoses in children catapulted. Let's finish with your taking us up to the and vaccines. When did mercyrolate preservative begin to be injected directly in children, and how did this herald the coming epidemic of autism? Well, the first um, thimerosal uh, and merthiolate was part of a program of research conducted by a, uh, a chemist uh, named Morris Karash. Uh, he actually worked in the chemical warfare service in World War One, and, and uh, it's pretty clear from his writings that he was working on ways to use mercury to kill people. One of the interesting things was, you know, the latency of mercury made it not particularly good as a chemical weapon, so they, they didn't come up with any usable chemical weapons, but uh, he, he tried to find uh, commercial applications for, uh, for his research in the 20s, and, and working with uh, DuPont in agriculture and Eli Lilly in, in medical applications, he began to develop patents and to, and to find commercial applications for ethylmercury compounds. Um, one of the first ways in which merthiolate, uh, the Eli Lilly compound, was used uh, was as a vaccine preservative, uh, and it was first widely used with the, the original diphtheria toxoid vaccines uh, in the early uh, uh, 1930s. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of the correspondence in time and place, you have the first uh, ethylmercury-based medical uh, products receiving wide distribution in about 1931, um, uh, you know, give or take a few months on either side. And you have the first cases of autism uh, that Leo Connor uh, diagnosed. Uh, the, the oldest of these was a, was a young woman. Uh, who was born in 1931. So, um, you know, it's a little bit like finding a smoking gun at the crime scene. We don't have a video of, of, the, uh, of the act being committed, um, but uh, we have, you know, a lot of circumstantial evidence. Uh, and, you know, and Morris Karash's inventions, both in terms of their agricultural uh, uses and their medical uses, are, you know, are close in time and place to Connor's original cases, the seven that we've been able to find. You know, we think Leo that's pretty Connor, important. Uh, concentrated on the fathers, which was kind of typical of the time, but one of the mothers that we were able to identify, the, the family involved, uh, Elizabeth Peabody, was an original uh, pioneer in public health, helped establish the well baby visits at Harvard, and um, wrote and talked a lot about the importance of vaccination, early vaccination, multiple vaccination, repeated vaccination, Putting the diphtheria shot, so we think that is really, really, as Mark says, that's that's pretty close to a smoking gun when you cross correlate that with the other exposures that we see in so many of those early cases. And in the in the latter half of the 20th century, there was a significant increase 
in the use of uh, samarosol-containing vaccines and, uh, correspondingly, what was diagnosed as autism. And they remain in flu shots, period. Great point. Tragic. Let's end there. And to our listeners, Mark Blaxel and Dan Olmsted will both be speaking at the National Autism Association's National Autism Conference November 11th to 14th at the Trade Winds Resort in Tampa, Florida. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on today and sharing this vital information. Thanks for having us, Terry. I encourage listeners to read more about the science of autism, the political intrigue, and um, other fascinating uh, information in Mark Blaxel and Dan Olmsted's book, The Age of Autism, Mercury, Medicine, and a Man-Made Epidemic. Again, this is the definitive volume on the mercury question, and it's essential for your library. So don't forget to visit the Age of Autism daily web newspaper of the autism epidemic at www.ageofautism.com. For questions about this program, please email me at tiaranga at autism1.org. Thank you to this show's sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.